One of my favorite books from a few years back was by the journalist Michael Moss, and it was called Salt, Sugar, Fat, How the Food Giants Hooked Us. Uh, it was a fascinating book. It's divided into three sections, one on salt, one on sugar, one on fat. And then there are three chapters in each section uh, where it, they tell the story of how food companies have spent billions and billions of dollars in scientific research for maximum addictive power. And then they've spent billions more marketing these products and then billions more lobbying the government. Um, it's fascinating, it's eye-opening. For months, I couldn't look at a bag of Doritos the same, like you learn all these little facts that I annoy Maggie with and have annoyed maybe some of you with, where the perfect chip breaks at like 10 pounds of pressure. Uh, but you have like all these like little tiny pieces of knowledge about bliss points and like all these things that just get into our brain. Uh, cereal and spaghetti sauce took on new meaning. Um, and why is that? Because these items and experiences had been given a new story where I went in and I saw this elaborate decades-long story behind these products and these displays. Um, I couldn't unsee what I'd been shown. Um, this story included mad scientists and greedy executives and dirty politicians and all the rest. Um, I couldn't unsee it until I did start unseeing it, right? Um, the story faded from view. I wrote this section of my sermon while eating some Cheez-Its at my <laughs> desk. So, um, Cheez-Its are so delicious, so I curse you, uh, Nabisco or Kellogg or whoever it is. Um, it, stories have the power to change us deeply, um, well-told stories, but it's hard to hold on to a story. It's hard to keep it top of mind, especially in the face of so many other stories, uh, especially in the face of stories written in the language of endorphins, right? Where Kellogg is telling my brain a story through the neurotransmitters in my tongue, right? And those are as devious, you can like picture like a devil on your uh, shoulder, sort of whispering to you. That's as devious or perhaps more so. We just wrapped up the story of God. We spent January walking through the biblical story from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, the story of God, which is the story of the Bible, uh, which I believe and, and some of you believe is the true story of the whole world. Um, it has the power to change everything, to give everything new meaning. But there are competing stories. And some of those stories compete in an honorable way where it is someone or something or some system that disagrees and we can sort of have an upfront uh, conversation, a direct challenge with respect and chivalry and all the rest, I'm all for that. But many of these stories are like the scientists at Kellogg, right? Who are just sort of needling their way in to my heart and my mind so that before I know it, before we know it, we find ourselves living exactly like we used to live as if the story is not true. First Peter, which we're beginning today, is about how Christians remain faithful to the gospel in the face of competing stories, about God and the ramifications of orienting our life wholly around him. It's a call to stand firm in the faith. First Peter 5 um, um, says that he wrote for that purpose. This is the true grace of God that you may stand firm in it. It's highly relevant to our life together as Christians in San Francisco. Uh, Miroslav Volf writes that 1 Peter speaks more pointedly and comprehensively to the problem of Christ and culture than any other in the New Testament. 
Its main theme is Christian life in a non-Christian environment. Christian life in a non-Christian environment. How do we do that? What an important question and how encouraging it is that we have the wisdom of an apostle available to us to answer this question. How that we get to sit under, we get to read, um, given to us by the Spirit. Um, I wonder, as you're sitting there and thinking about, man, we're going to devote five months to this book together as a community. In the next five months, what help would you like to receive from 1 Peter and from the Spirit? How is the challenge of Christian living in a non-Christian space relevant to you currently? You're able to speak and answer. What comes to mind? great. It's one of the great things about First Peter is there's a nuance in there where some things you affirm, some things you deny. He sort of helps us navigate. I hope he does. What else comes to mind? a lot of people, they like the concept of what Christianity and God has to offer and everything, but psychologically, we have all these offers, and it's anything to do with Christianity, preaching, Bible, God, what we need to do, what I do is I explain the glory of the Son of, of God and all the benefits, but I pre-guess what their offers are, and I walk around them, because mm -hmm. you can have a conversation with somebody, and you'll say something God. Uh, preaching and have and a beautiful conversation of life, living good, and mm -hmm. all the benefits of it. But you'll say one word, a person will keep nodding with you and keep going, but their insides would, would, would have turned off. If you can learn to, to stay away from the awkwards and still uh, explain the magnificent of Him being in your life and the help and the benefits of it, you know, you, you, you're fishing. You know, different yeah. waters take different baits, you know, and out here we're deep sea fishing, it takes a different. <laughs> you know, so you want to fish, find out what the bait is without scaring off the fish, because one thing will psychologically scare them off. They'll still be talking to you, but they would have turned you off. Unfortunately, yeah. everything to do over these last few thousand years with Christianity, all the words is offers God, yeah. uh, Christ, unfortunately, but you want to pull them in with the Lord, and then surprise them, well, you know, you got to ask, we're 
God, yeah. we all sinners. We need help. We need a payment. Yeah, so how do we win sin? Robbie, you were going to say something? Yeah, I was just kind of the same lines of what they're saying. Just kind of having the verbiage in some ways to, or not, not even the verbiage, just the heart and the mind to engage and not be thinking about my preconceived desire, what I want them to know. Mm-hmm. But how do I engage and love and listen? How do I listen really well with a heart that, that really truly loves them without trying to think about what's my comeback going to be or what's, what's the truth I want to convey to them? Thanks for sharing all that. Um, continue to, to, to speak in and uh, contribute and ping and like help us to like support each other with this super significant question. But before we jump in, um, let's first pray and ask, the God, ask God to help us in all these ways over the coming months and this morning. Dear Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for the gospel. Uh, it is good news. We're thankful for Jesus. We're thankful for his character, how lovely he is. Um, Many of us here, we can't imagine living life without him close at hand. Uh, He means the world to us. You mean the world to us. And we want to live faithfully to you, And we also want to live as people who offer good news to others. And so help us as we enter 1 Peter to be uh, grounded, to stand firm in the true grace of God. Uh, Help us to be winsome. Help us as we talk about culture, as we talk about Christian spaces and non-Christian spaces, that we would avoid the peril of culture war and hostility. Um, That is not something that we see you do in your ministry, and we ask that that we too would not um, fall into that, Um, but that we would be true disciples of Jesus following you. Uh, Help us this morning, give us grace, open our eyes to what we need to see, um, and we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. I wonder how many of you are acknowledgments readers in books. So if you start a book, do you read the acknowledgement section? Do you read the acknowledgement section? Okay. Who here skips all lowercase Roman numeral pages? 
they're monsters. They're monsters. Um, whenever we start a new section of scripture, we always want to take time to understand the setting and the scope of the book to see in what ways we can identify with the audience and sort of listen as they listened. Uh, and verse 1 and 2 lays out for us pretty clearly um, the background to First Peter. It's not a throwaway verse. Peter packs a lot into these short two verses, um, already beginning to teach and encourage us. Uh, Marley Stevens is the uh, lead teacher at our local CBS, the Community Bible Study. She taught through First Peter in 2020 and uh, kindly provided notes to me. And so I really like what she said about these verses. She likened it to an espresso shot, right? You don't just like throw back an espresso shot, um, you sip it. And so that's what we're going to do in these two verses this morning. So let's take our first sip. Chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. First uh, Peter is a letter written by Simon Peter. Simon Peter was the leader of Jesus' 12 disciples. He was the founder of the church at Jerusalem. He was there at Pentecost, the first preacher of the gospel that was not Jesus. Um, he, uh, but notice his humility here, which is really striking. Um, he doesn't say much about himself, uh, which is uncommon for ancient letters. Normally they would say a ton about themselves and then just a little bit about who it was to. Um, and in my mind, this is evidence that this truly was written by the Apostle Peter, because if someone was pretending to be Apostle Peter, they would probably sort of puff themselves up a good bit. And so this is a humble uh, apostle, um, not the Peter that we see in the Gospels. This is a new and changed person. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He's writing to Christians spread out over a really large area of the Roman Empire, uh, what is roughly the area of modern Turkey. Um, most New Testament letters are written to dense urban areas, but 1 Peter is different. The region he lists are not cities but provinces. Um, it's uh, an area that's a little bit smaller than the state of California. Um, and so this letter would be delivered um, to many churches in all these regions around. Uh, it's a sparsely populated area, very different from the missionary spots Paul frequented. It's also a lot more diverse. Um, there are, these are different people groups um, in these spaces. It has not yet been Hellenized. Much of it is rural. The people, languages, cultures are more pre-Roman than Roman. Uh, even the land is diverse. So it's going to include mountains and deserts, seasides. Uh, Karen Jobes, a New Testament scholar, writes, The picture that emerges of the regions to which Peter wrote is one of a vast geographical area with small cities, few and far between, of a diversified population of indigenous peoples, Greek settlers, and Roman colonists. The residents practiced many religions, spoke several languages, and were never fully assimilated into the Greco-Roman culture. Um, you can even see that now, Turkey is Eurasia, right? It's like half in Europe and half in Asia, and the culture is really uh, reminiscent of that. Um, so uh, as we think about the New Testament, outside of southern Galatia, there is no account of Peter and Paul ever visiting these spots. Um, it's not a cultural center where lots of people pass through. And so it's really hard to believe that these Christian communities could form through organic evangelism in just like 30 or 40 years after the resurrection. And so we sort of have to ask, like, where did these people come from? Uh, Peter addresses them as exiles, and he's going to take this up as a metaphor, but this is likely a literal reading. Uh, Roman Emperor Claudius uh, reigned from 41 to 54. 
He significantly expanded the Roman Empire. He actually established all these colonies. By, so they're named, he named them, he established them. Um, and at this time, when the Roman Empire started a colony, they had kind of a foolproof strategy to do so. Um, first, they'd conquer an area. And then second, in the spirit of peace, they would give lots of freedom so that people could continue to live um, allowing to retain their culture, their customs, their religious practices, uh, on one condition that they would add to their religion worship of the emperor. So you worship these gods, but just also uh, worship the emperor. Uh, third, to avoid future rebellions, they would colonize the area with lots of foreigners. They would move a lot of people. In, in essence, they would gentrify the region. That's what they were trying to do, to dilute um, the culture and conquer it by doing so. Now, there are a couple ways that Rome sent people. Uh, one way was to encourage people to move for socioeconomic reasons. Um, so if you're maybe uh, on the lower rung of society in Rome, you have the opportunity to move to a new Roman colony and be higher up. So it might be like an upward mobility thing. Um, uh, another way was to free slaves in the city of Rome and grant them citizenship in the new place. You would, you would uh, free them, and sometimes they do that if there was famine or if they were having food trouble feeding all the people in Rome, they were like, we need to get this population down, so we're going to move them over. They'd send military veterans. But it was also common for the emperor or senate to deport a group of troublemakers in Rome. And so lots of troublemakers found their way to Rome, and so they would send them off. So whole classes of people, um, whole like ethnic groups, religious groups, uh, one time they sent all philosophers out of the city, right? They're just like sending people out to, to get them far from the seat of power. A biographer of Claudius writes that religious groups, while normally tolerated, were considered a menace the moment they took advantage of that courtesy to disturb the public peace, offend accepted morals, or engage in converting native Romans. And so Rome was very tolerant, but only to an extent, right? Their tolerance was... Um, pragmatic. Um, it wasn't because they, um, it, it wasn't a religious conviction. It was uh, to keep the peace. So anytime someone abused that tolerance, um, then they met trouble. Uh, Acts 18.2 references just this pattern when Claudius commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And so maybe you're beginning to sort of get the picture. Um, it's likely that at least a good portion of the Christians Peter writes to were actually exiles, literally dispersed uh, from their home in Rome to remote regions. Uh, Christians converted in Rome through the ministry of Peter and forcibly removed because they were Christians. Now, imagine their experience. Despised by their homeland, where they grew up, deported and sent away as foreigners, Relocated, but now seen just as much as a foreigner by the native population, resented as colonizers, uh, resented as a religious minority. There's already the sense of scarcity between competing people groups, and now the Romans have sent tens of thousands of people in. Uh, gentrification often disrupts native peoples, right? How hard it must have been for these exiles and then even harder for local converts because there would have been people who were there who converted and became Christian. What was seen of them to join the colonizers, right? To join the religious minority. And we don't really have to guess how that went because Peter tells us in the letter how hard it was. Like that's the situation he's writing to. 
uh, Karen Jones again. She says, although they were not being martyred or imprisoned by the state, what Christians had to fear was more in the nature of social ostracism, unfriendly acts by neighbors, pressure on Christian wives from pagan husbands, masters taking it out on Christian slaves, and other actions of that kind. It was sufficient in any case to make life uncomfortable. Um, I discovered this month um, a fun fact that one of the experts on First Peter, um, premier experts, was a professor for decades at the University of San Francisco. He died at the end of January 2020, but he says, John Elliott, uh, he says the chief weapon of attack employed by the Christian's local neighbors was a barrage of verbal abuse designed to shame, defame, demean, and discredit the believers as social and moral deviants, endangering the common good. A strategy of public shaming was employed as a means of social control with the aim of pressuring the minority community to conform to conventional values and standards of conduct. The unrelenting abuse resulted in undeserved suffering on the part of the believers. And so it's into this experience that Peter writes. This is their cultural moment. Um, but I wonder, like, how might this letter, just given that story, how do you identify with it? How does it feel connected to our cultural moment in San Francisco 2022? What resonates with you? One of the things I love about San Francisco is that Christianity is not part of the mainstream culture. Mm -hmm. um, it just makes for more fun conversations, mm -hmm. I think, than the, you know, growing up in Idaho kind of thing. Um, so yeah, I see in this story some of that same thing where like the predominant culture and the predominant ethos is very Yeah, I think you know, one of the things with, with the diversity is there's anxiety on all sides. You know, that you have the people who are local are anxious, the people who are Romans moving in are anxious, you have religious anxiety. There's like so much, there's a sense of scarcity that there's not enough room here for everybody. Um, and a sense of like, and, and that's sort of what diversity does. Like the, the more 
diverse a place becomes, the, the more tension often happens. Um, because it's fine if you have like a big majority and you just have a few people over here, they can't do much. But then when, the, when it starts to even out, there's so much uh, stress in the system. So this is like a stressful, anxious place. Not only the Christians are stressed, like everybody is distressed um, and responding out of that, which just feels really relevant. Like we have an anxious culture, you know, like a really stressed culture that responds out of stress. Um, here, you know, earlier we said that First Peter was about how Christians live in non-Christian spaces, but, but it is about more than that, right? It's about Christians being shamed for living out their faith in non-Christian spaces. Um, and so it's not just, um, it's not just being different, but being shamed for being different. It's not just how do we live, but how do we live with the shame of living? And that can be a reality here, an unspoken reality here in the city. Um, a group of us meet for Surge every Friday morning at Flywheel, and there's one man who's interrupted us numerous times to tell us that we shouldn't be talking about Jesus in public, and even amongst ourselves, um, that it's hurtful and offensive for him to even overhear it. And I just was sort of like wanting clear, it's like, okay, so if we were talking about politics or something, let's say, well, that would be okay, but the fact that we're talking about Jesus, we shouldn't talk about him. Um, it's hurtful and offensive, and we're selfish for talking about Christianity in public. Um, and that is shame. Like, he's shaming us for our beliefs, telling us more or less that if you're going to be a Christian, at least do it in private. Now, my experience as a Christian in San Francisco is rarely so extreme. Like, that, he's an outlier. I've never had anyone approach me um, and, and say that I'm selfish for just talking with my friend over here about Jesus. But um, that reality, that, that shame is present. Um, our stories are not wholly dissimilar from these Eurasian Christians. Uh, most of us in the room are literally not from here. Many, most of us here, the majority, I think, uh, we're foreigners. We're economic exiles, like uh, banished here by the um, emperors of capitalism, right? Um, uh, and as members of a religious minority, we're not always welcome. Uh, if you are from San Francisco, you are a local, you're a follower, and, and you're a follower of Jesus, you are still in some ways an outsider because of those beliefs. Like there are rituals and celebrations and practices that are built into the culture here that your devotion to Christ can keep you from. And most people are polite about it, but not always, and maybe becoming less so as Christian beliefs become more and more beyond the pale. And with that exclusion comes opportunities for shame. Shame and honor are really important themes in First Peter. It was a uh, honor-based culture, um, and, and I think that that theme is so, so good for our church in this moment, um, because I believe that a lot of us here, myself included, live with shame for what we believe, that try as we might, convinced as I am of the truth and goodness and beauty of the gospel. I struggle with shame. And I bet that some of the doubts here around some of Christianity's oldest and most orthodox beliefs began with shame. Where we're asking, like, am I really bigoted? 
Is that true? Am I ignorant? Am I backwards? Those are shame statements. NYU philosopher Kwame Apia has written how the best weapon for changing moral norms is honor and shame. Moral revolutions take place when honor and shame are redistributed. And that's a good description of our current moment. Who is honored and who is shamed has changed rapidly and is changing. And we live now in a shame culture about this and so much else. Um, a sociologist describes a shame culture. He says, in a society having a shame culture, a man may feel ashamed even if he has not actually done something wrong but simply if this is the common opinion concerning his deeds or concerning what has been done to him or done to or by someone with whom he is closely associated. And so as a result of rapid cultural change, you and I can feel the need to move about our public lives really carefully. Uh, we're careful with our words. We don't speak honestly about who we are and what we believe. We're not our full selves. We're afraid to speak openly about Jesus. This man who we literally sang to this morning, we sang to him. Who do you sing to in your life? You sing to Jesus. You sing to God. He's this beautiful man who died for us, who was raised from the dead, who has forgiven us for every sin, who loves us. We love him. We sang this morning, I want nothing but you. I want nothing but you. And I know so many of us sing that. We sing it honestly, truly, but it's hard to carry that into the week. It's hard to carry that into our other relationships. We're quiet about him everywhere else. Why? And I think one reason that so few evangelistic strategies work is because they usually fail to account for our shame. They fail to address that. You can give me all the tools in the world. If I am struggling with shame, I'm not going to use them, right? Like, I'm just not going to. I can have the Romans Road and four spiritual laws and, like, all the things, um, but I'm not going to use them. But if we are honest about our sense of shame, it will open up to the resources in the gospel to address our shame. It'll open us up to the book of 1 Peter, to speak to us. This, now, the solution is not to shame me for my shame, right? That, that's often the posture, like before the evangelistic strategy session, is to, is to feel shame for shame, right? It's not motivating for me to tell myself, you must not really love people. You must not really love Jesus. If you love people and love Jesus, you would talk about him more. That's just more shame, right? And and more shame is the world strategy for revolution. Like, that's what we see other people do. It's just competitive shaming. But in God's kingdom, it is entirely unproductive to respond to shame with more shame. Um, that's not the gospel. Sadly, that has often been the church's response. Is moral revolution through shame? Like, that has so often been how the church has gone about moral revolutions. But it is not the way of the Lord. It's not the way of grace. Competitive shaming, so that now I feel shame at work and at church, and I'm just hoping that the church shame like overpowers the work shame. Like that's that's not going to get very far, right? That's not freedom. That's not what First Peter is after. Jesus doesn't do that. He died to free us from that kind of thinking. He died to take away our shame. 
But it is true that whatever we want Jesus to take away, we have to name. And so if that's you, and I, and I think it is so many of us, man, will you just name it right now before the Lord? Will you just pray to Jesus to say, Lord, I feel shame for my association with you. I feel it. Name it. It is shameful to be called selfish at a coffee shop. Like, you walk away just confused and, like, baffled, like you don't know what to do. That is, you're discouraged. Like, that is shameful. It is shameful to be called a bigot for simply disagreeing with someone. It is shameful to be called an idiot for believing the Bible is true. Like, those are shameful experiences. And they, and they affect you. It matters when another human being addresses you like that. Like, it can't not affect you. And so we name it. When a workplace, a city, a culture looks down on someone, um, it's significant and we've got to name it. And Peter here names their shame right at the start. 1 Peter 1.1, to those who are elect exiles. He could have said something so much nicer about them, right? So many of the other letters open up to my brothers and sisters in Christ, to the saints who are faithful, to the church. Those are some of Paul's openings. He could have just said to the elect, and all of those would be true, but instead he just goes for it. And he says to the elect exiles, he calls them exiles, foreigners, the homeless ones, the wanderers, the rejected, the canceled. He just names it. But then he turns it on in his head, doesn't he? Because they're not just exiles, they're elect exiles. He dignifies their exclusion. To those who are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. He dignifies their rejection. You may be rejected by the world, but you have been chosen by God. And that's how Peter addresses our shame with honor. He showers the church with honor. He answers our shame not with more shame. He doesn't just shame the people who are shaming them. He doesn't just divert and say, well, these people are so terrible. He showers them with honor. Gracious honor, divine praise. Man, throughout this letter, if you look through, Peter just is constantly praising the church. He's constantly Dignifying them. Here they are, cowering, doubtful, insecure, confused, ashamed. And he says to them, 1 Peter 2, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. If you're struggling with shame for your association, for anything, listen to these words through the mouth of Peter, from the mouth of God over you. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You have been commissioned for this. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. If you're living with shame right now, let these titles just like wash over you so that you can walk through this world, God's world, with your head held high. Ex 
exiles, yes, but elect exiles. These Christians were chosen, and they're not just chosen for a salvation. That's an important theme through the letter. They are chosen for the experience of exile. That is part of God's design. Whatever our circumstances are, whatever relationships we're struggling to bear witness to Christ in, you and I were chosen to live right now in this moment. God planned for you to live for Jesus in this city, in this time, in your workplace, in your family, for your neighborhood, with your unbelieving spouse, oppressive boss, prejudiced coffee shop frenemy, whoever it is, like you were chosen for today. God chose you for this. He filled you with the Spirit so that you could be a royal priesthood here a holy nation here that you and I and we might proclaim the excellencies of Jesus who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is God's plan for you and for us to walk this path. It is a challenging path for sure, but it's a path already walked by Jesus. That's the importance. That's why we have to name the shame because the shame connects us to Jesus. And we want to be connected to Jesus. First Peter 2, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, and by your wounds you can heal this city. It's important to name our shame because this shame connects us to Jesus' shame, and it's an honor to be connected to Jesus' shame. 1 Peter 4, 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. What a word. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. We are blessed. That is not how I felt walking out of flywheel. I am blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. I don't feel blessed often, but I am. It's the truth. Um, and perhaps I'm more blessed here in San Francisco than I would be in other places. Less blessed than many Christians who live around the world, which is so important for us to remember when we struggle in our ways here. Um, I read a story recently, I couldn't find it, um, so I don't know where, who to reference, but it was a story uh, about a group of American seminary students who were planning a memorial service lamenting the martyrdom of some Egyptian Christians in Egypt. And when some Egyptian students they thought they were doing this as a service. When some Egyptian students heard about this, they stopped them because to them, martyrdom was something to be celebrated. And they helped them plan a celebration service for the privilege 
of being martyred. It's mind-blowing. But it's biblical, like so very biblical. We're not there yet. I'm not there. Uh, not in persecution level, but also not in heart. And so thankfully the Lord, he, he knows what we can handle. Um, but it's okay that we're not there because God's word is powerful. The people to whom Peter wrote weren't there. That's why he wrote the letter, um, to encourage them. But um, it, it, what is encouraging, two important facts. I'll close with two important facts about Asia Minor. After 1 Peter was written, suffering would only get much worse. Um, and so there was no martyrdom, but after Emperor Claudius comes Emperor Nero, who would lead the first organized killing, official sanctioned killing of Christians, including the Apostle Peter. That's how the Peter would die. Forty years later, in Asia Minor specifically, Pliny the Younger would write to Emperor Trajan about how to deal with Christians, and Trajan wrote back and said that although Christians should not be searched for, people who were accused and proven Christians were to be punished unless by worshiping the Roman gods proved they were no longer Christian. And punished means killed. So it gets much worse for these people, these Christians, but Christianity only grew stronger in this region. Asia Minor would become a Christian stronghold for a thousand years, the center of Christianity outside of Rome. Asia Minor is where Nicaea and Constantinople and Chalcedon are located. These are the cities where the church's creeds were written, right? These are the cities where the church would articulate how it is that God is Trinity, three and one, and how Christ can be God and man. Such important places, and this is the seed of them, right? All because these elect exiles would stand firm in their faith. And so be encouraged. And what could be the testimony in San Francisco, in Seattle, wherever you're from, in Africa, what could be the testimony if we stand firm, right? To stand firm in what we know, no matter the trials we face, to believe and to confess our belief before our families, neighbors, and employers, and to say without awkwardness or sheepishness that God, what God's people have said for millennia, that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus saves. Let's pray. Dear Father, we, I want to name shame before you and ask for your help. Father, help me to hear the words of Peter over the church, your gracious divine honor that you just shower us with. And may your voice ring loudly in my heart and mind that because of Jesus, I was not a people, but now I am God's people. We were people who had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. That we are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for your own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous night. We are not called to proclaim and announce shame on this culture or criticism. We are called to proclaim you and you alone, your excellencies. Thank you for the joy and privilege of being able to gather on Sundays, to gather in a Christian space, and to sing and we proclaim, we practice here 
in our singing, but would we go boldly knowing that we carry the truth with us, we carry good news with us, and we may we be just as bold out and about. We love you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for being patient with me, and we pray these things in Christ's name.